the pandemic is a terrible, terrible thing, but there's a lot of silver linings in it. The way we have, are changing our workplaces, our economy, and our society have a lot of opportunity to say, if you are someone who's like, damn, the system really sucks, but I have an idea to fix it. This is the time. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Find Your Calling podcast. I am Terry Eisman. Today on the program, California's first Gen Z legislator, California Assemblymember-elect Alex Lee. He is a very interesting guy. I caught a glimpse of him uh, a few weeks ago and I thought, man, this guy, he's going places. Whether you agree with his political positions or not, it's pretty fascinating to see a 25-year-old win uh, a campaign, especially against seven other uh, Democrats competing head-to-head with him. We dive deep into everything from corporate money and politics to the biggest frustrations of campaigning uh, to what he really thinks about how the news media thinks and and, and covers people like him. Maybe younger people, maybe non-traditional candidates, uh, people with without a whole lot of money and name recognition. Anyways, the guy is candid. We go deep. And without further ado, I think you'll find him fascinating. California Assemblymember-elect, until tomorrow, Alex... Lee. Joining me now is Assemblymember-elect Alex Lee. All right, so first off, Alex, how does that title sound for you? Because it's going to be real in just a few days. So how, how does that how does that make you feel? Well, it's incredibly surreal to hear, those, hear that title still ascribed to me. It's something we've been working uh, really hard for almost two years towards, but still something really surreal to hear. But I'm really grateful to have that title, you know. Right. Well, it's listen, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Um, welcome to the show. I think first, um, I, let's just start with some brass tags, because I don't think that a lot of people know who you are in California, maybe, you know, in, in the district um, which elected you, but maybe not a lot of people in California. So you are going to be California's first Gen Z legislator. Yes. Yay for Gen Zers yeah. <laughs> like myself um, and the youngest in, in over 80 years, which is pretty amazing. And you're going to be representing District 25. So that is Fremont, San Jose, Santa Clara. So basically a part of the Bay, right? Would that be mm-hmm. a good a good way Absolutely. to put it? Yes, the East it, and South Bay. The East and South Bay, exactly. Yes. Um, and so, I, you know, I was really fascinated by you because I caught a glimpse of you on Spectrum One News in, here in SoCal. And I mean, I was really blown away because you go from student body president, which is pretty hard to get two and then you you know intern at the capitol and listen there's a lot of interns at the capitol right i mean interns at the district offices interns in sacramento so going to where you are right now which is i believe on monday you will be officially sworn in right Mm -hmm. as assembly Mm -hmm. members is pretty amazing so i think it's important to first talk a little bit about your upbringing because a lot of successful people like yourself something something clicks something is 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 right in your upbringing so um you know, so many parents usually try to force their kids into some kind of lane, right? We see this all the time, right? Where parents try to push their kids into whatever career that is. I mean, what what was your upbringing like? I mean, did you ever feel that that kind of pressure? Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, uh, growing up, I had a lot of different career or ideas when you were a kid. Uh, one, I wanted to be like a paleontologist or utologist, or even wanted to be a doctor all the way up until I was applying to uh, colleges. I went to UC Davis, really great school. It's the top uc because literally it's the most north it's the top one of the state um i'll let you you get away with that justification (laughs) (laughs) i have to i have to have aggie pride come on i was the president there 
Um, yes, absolutely. But, you absolutely. know, like I had a lot of different career options and paths. And really, when it came down to applying for schools, as a lot of a lot of young people are doing right now at this moment, or actually they already submitted the UC apps by now. Right. Um, when I was applying, it was the re-election campaign of President Barack Obama in 2012. That kind of also mm-hmm. shows you how late of a decider I am. But, um, you know, I had decided, wow, I think I had always wanted to make an impact, a positive impact society to make people's lives better. And maybe it's in government, right? So I became a political science major at UC Davis and also studied communications as a double major. I never did any like real um, extracurricular stuff in high school. And so when I went there, I was like, yeah, you know, now that I'm paying a bunch of oodles and oodles of money to go to UC, maybe I should get involved and, you know, uh, figure things out. Right. So there I actually became a student senator. Then I became the student body president at Davis during a very tumultuous time. It was also 2016 Mm -hmm. when I became president. So that was also the year that Donald Trump became president as well. Um, So it was very Mm -hmm. challenging, obviously, in that environment. And just four years later, Right. It's actually at UC Davis. It was the first time I saw Bernie Sanders live, like in person, and mm-hmm. he spoke and everything. And I was really close to him too because I was president. I almost got to talk to him, but oh well. But you know what? Uh, four years later, Bernie's endorsed me for state assembly. I was also a delegate for him at DNC, wow. and it's come as full circle. And it's just amazing how right. much can change in four years, you know? Because when we are right. set on a path, I think of really genuinely wanting to change society and help people for the better, and not just for a personal gain, but to really help other people life will kind of find a way on its own and we'll have those opportunities open to up with up to us. Totally. But I mean, did your what did your parents think of this whole politics thing? I, I, because, <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because sometimes when I'll go to interview people like I remember I was interviewing a school board member and I was I was on the way to the interview because, um, you know, I, of course, I want to be a journalist. And so uh, I yep. told my grandma, listen, I'm going to be interviewing this uh, g- p- politician. And, you know, she's from she's from the former USSR. So she's like, mm. you're going to ask a politician hard questions. And she, she was <laughs> she was a little scared about that. So um, but, you know, but but so what, what did your parents think of this whole politics thing? Because obviously it's it can get a little rough. Mm hmm. Yeah, you know, my parents are from Hong Kong and, and you know, their parents are from China. Um, yeah. And there's obviously a storied, storied and parallel history with your family as well there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, being in politics was definitely not their first ideal for their eldest son. Um, you know, they wanted me to do something like being in the medical field or something, almost stereotypically, right, do something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had figured early on in high school, I was rubbish at it. I can't do chemistry or biology. And I'm like, what kind of doctor would I be if I can't do that? Right. Um, so, you know, they, they weren't um, completely understanding of it at first, but now that we've accomplished something so early on, I think they're definitely very proud. I wanted to ask you this because I heard somewhere that you were, as you started to make your foray in this realm, you were also interested in the film industry, yeah. right? And so you were sort of debating between, do I go into the film industry, make an impact there, or do I go straight into elected office? So mm-hmm. help me understand, why the heck would you go into a place, right, where there is influence, but it comes with scrutiny, attacks, so much vitriol, especially right now, because you could be yeah. ma- making movies and maybe they'll be controversial, right? <laughs> and whatever, right? Because mm-hmm. Someone will deem it controversial, but but you won't maybe um, face the scrutiny that an elected official gets. So who in their right mind goes into elected office? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when I was debating between figuring out if my life was going to be in the film and in, in film and entertainment industry or uh, in politics, I thought, well, one of them 
is that you work collaboratively together with a lot of people with different skill sets. You find money to, to deliver a product. And in the end, maybe it's a big risk and it's all about storytelling, right? At the end of the day, it's telling a story and getting your message out there, right? And the other one is cutthroat politics, right? So, I mean, like, no, I, I joke, but, you know, both of them are very similar, actually, if you think about it. And I think having that lens and understanding of it actually makes us a stronger um, person in elected office, stronger person governing, and a stronger uh, activist, even. Because a lot of people, I think, in politics don't understand that government is just like storytelling. I wish it was just like movie making in that way. It's like the storytelling. You're telling a story, you're delivering a product, and you're also getting a lot of people together who have diverse sets of talents, right? Because a lot of people, when they think of politics, it's just they're the actor, you know what I mean? They're just the talent on the screen that you see, but in reality, you're so much, such a bigger production, you know? Um, you know, I... I, I um, I mean, I do you fear all the, the yeah. scrutiny? Do you, do you, I mean, no. is it, uh, no? No, no. You know, I Good think for you. coming from a lot of different marginalized backgrounds, right? I'm young, I'm queer, I'm, and I'm Asian American. <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think just growing up just in that fact, in this country, in this society, I've developed a thick skin. And if people, the worst thing people have to say are mean things that are, they're uh, superficial, you know, I, I don't really worry about that. But, you know, I really worry about doing a good job. And if people have fair criticism to say or try to hold me accountable, that's fine. I think that's fair. That's how it should be. You know, I think too too often too many politicians are afraid of being held accountable. And I'm not. As we mentioned, you were the student body president at UC Davis. That's right. Which is truly a feat. And to those who don't know, of course, all the Bruins that <laughs> listen to this might know this. But to those who don't know, this is a massive marketing campaign undertaking kind of, you know, undertaking, right? Because you, <laughs> it's hard for sometimes for people to understand because they think, oh, it's student body president, whatever. But no, you have to convince a bunch of people to log into, right, to log into their portal. They basically have very few incentives I think to do so, and that's assuming that they even know about those incentives to log in. So anyways, kudos to you on that, to, to actually making it Thank through you. that. But so was there a moment um, for you, I mean, during your time as student body president, maybe as an intern um, at the Capitol, when you realized that you should actually throw your hat into the ring, that maybe you shouldn't put it off, be a politician sometime in the future, that right now is the moment when you should should make those, you know, should make your foray into this business? I actually uh, thought the opposite while being president in turn. So I interned in the Capitol while being president as well. Um, and, you know, I would say if you ever do student government or any kind of extracurricular activities at the UCs, there mm-hmm. it is the same microcosm of petty politics, of interpersonal relationships and team building and also getting things done. It's oh, the same thing you extrapolate. And it, it's yeah. the same thing in the state legislature. And a lot of it, I was like, wow, do I really want to keep doing this stuff? But when the stakes are actually higher this time, and you know, actually, you know, there's a lot of stakes. And I will For say, real. <laughs> yeah, at UC Davis, the stakes are pretty high. Our operating right. budget at the time when I was president was $13 million was that high. And I was basically in charge of writing the budget and executing it that way. Um, so, you know, a lot of it, I was just like, you know, I think I'm content to work in the background and, and do my part there, you know. And it wasn't really until recently when this seat came up and it was my home district seat that I thought, you know, there's so many things that are frustratingly broken in the system. And if I won't fix it, I won't go there and challenge the system. Who will do it? Right. I think we all arrive at a point where it's like, that's our, our, the moment, the, the how do you, that's the moment the pen, the penny drops or shoe drops. What I don't know how the, right. Something, like that. Yeah, something like that. Something ignites. Something dropping. <laughs> something ignites. Yeah, that's dropping. Right. Something ignites. And then that's the moment yeah. you decide. The mic drop it. is when you won. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Do you think that you'll have to use the skills that you garnered um, as student body president at UC oh, Davis in your job? Like, I mean, yeah, do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, what do you think you'll have to I, list? I think like one thing I always tell people, especially people who do student government or something even related type of activity when they're in college or mm-hmm. through school. Like I said, it's foundational skill set, right? Uh, and why I say it's foundational is because sometimes I'll look at people who are in local government who never had that experience, right? Maybe they just never had that opportunity in life, right? But I see them playing the same or playing out the same mistakes or uh, thing, pitfalls that that you would have learned if you had done student government, right? It's like the same thing when you have the first-time senators or first-time going in that don't quite understand how to work as a group or work at the interpersonal dynamics of politics and friendships and all that stuff. And I see it. I'm like, why Why have you made that mistake? And you're like 50 years old. You're twice as old as me. And yet I would never do, I would never think to do that. And I think back, it's because that experience you had, right? It's so invaluable. And even if you're in it right now and you don't even realize you're having these skills, just go out into the world and you'll start seeing how other people behave. And it's like, it's such a foundational skill set, and it's such a privilege to be able to serve in these roles and learn these things. Because in a lot of ways, we're learning them in, in safer spaces too, right? The stakes are high, Grant. Yes, they are real stakes and there's actual things that will happen. But there is more, I think, forgiveness for error, right? Um, you aren't going to get impeached. You aren't going to go to jail, <laughs> hopefully, right? Like right. There's, a lot, there's a lot of railings there to help protect you, but you can grow so much. So it's it's so foundational, and I'm taking those same skill sets there. And it's like this 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 the rookie mistakes I would have made when I was like a lot younger. When I was president, I was 20 as well. So I was like the, those mistakes I hopefully would not make again because I learned uh, the hard way, right? Or I learned through trial and error. Right. I think that's such a good point because sometimes um, right now, especially you know, especially at the advent I think of the pandemic, uh-huh. you saw so many politicians, you know. Uh, sort of bickering at each other and and really um you're watching them met from from afar but you can see that some kind of something is the interpersonal dynamics and assuming there is some bipartisanship right some bipartisanship in washington but (laughs) you can see that some of those right just a little but some of those people don't really know how to even really talk to each other right and you have to i think learn that and i think that that's such a good point that you can amass these critical Dipl- diplomatic skills i don't even know how to call them but yeah, yeah, yeah. ways to relate to other people that that serve you well and your constituents right um that help you in the long run so i so let me then ask you this right because you start running this campaign in 2019 which seems ages ago right <laughs> it feels like every single day just um is uh is elongated Hopefully. Right, yeah. right. Um, but the real work for you in the trenches was when you had to face off, I believe it was seven other people or something like that in the, in the primary. So first off, how did your friends and family react when you said, I'm going to run for, <laughs> for assembly member? Uh, yeah, when I was facing seven other Democrats in my primary, you know, it was definitely always going to be an uphill challenge. We were outspent 15 to 1. We we're out endorsed by the establishment. Like it, we had every single conventional impediment in front of us, but we knew we would work ten times harder. And I, and I'm lucky to have friends and family that don't, they don't view it as like a gambling, a, a horse race, right? Because some people in politics say like, well, this person's going to run a little faster, and they have all these resources, so let's just go behind this person. They believed in my vision and they believed in me enough to support me regardless of the odds, right? Even if I, especially if I were in the front runner, especially if I were the underdog, one way or the other, they would have supported me. And I think really that's the kind of base, if you're ever to get into politics or do organize or anything like that, you need to do, right? Because 
I really strongly believe that there are people out there who genuinely care about you and care about what you want to do as, as well as you, right? You probably care about other people right. and you want them to succeed no matter what, right? You don't, you don't, you don't expect to pay off later on and say, Hey, where's my day? Right. You just really want right. to do it because it's communal success. Right. And I think right. that mentality is how we improve our politics rather than having these horse races. Cause you're right. Mm-hmm. Even in Washington, DC and stuff, it's all about, you know, they're always engaged kind of at least in a friendly competition. Right. But a lot of it is everyone, everyone imagines they're the, the lead in the, in the movie. Right. When in fact we're all different roles, either behind the camera or in front of the camera, we all must play it humbly. Um, and I think, the sooner we understand that and we can also take roles, you know, we can take turns exchanging roles. That's fine too. Uh, but as long as we come to understand that sharing process, it's going to be a lot better. Right. What was the most surprising aspect of campaigning for you? I mean, what, what, what yeah. were you just like gobsmacked by? <sighs> There's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot. Um, Give me the top guess, thing. What's the, what's I the top the, surprising yeah. thing? I guess it's just the way money is used in campaigns you know how so how did you experience that firsthand yeah absolutely i mean we hear all the time like this person has gobs and gobs money they have million dollars there blah 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 but then i think when we hear it in the general public they're like wow that's impressive right but it's up to our imagination to what they use it on right i was actually very surprised how many people just like burn money because although we were outspent 15 to 1, I think we spent it more frugally and more effectively, you know, even though we had a lot less money. Um, there's a whole thing I like to call the election industrial complex, which basically is you pay for all these fundraisers, these consultants, all these, you know, people with fancy titles, and you pay them thousands and thousands of dollars. But that money is never basically translated into your your voters, right, your constituency. Every dollar we spent was voter outreach, and we were very clear about that. And so we were outspent 15 to 1 just by one candidate, right? Uh, I'm not even counting the other candidates uh, below that. Um, but, you know, every dollar we spent was to reach another voter. And the way we counted it was $1 basically was just two voters, which is pretty crazy. So when we when we did all the math, my one opponent who spent uh, almost half a million dollars, their vote per dollar ratio was like something like 40 cents. No, it was like uh, $40 a vote or something. And mine was like 50 cents a vote. So it was like, it was well, like you're the winner inverse. here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was completely inverse, yeah. right? Because, but it, yeah, it shows yeah. to me, you know, like money, money obviously helps a lot of campaigns, but does not make or break campaigns. And I think we have been so focused on the money aspect and it has clouded people's judgment on things that it is so warped. It's crazy because I would, I would tell you like, sometimes I would talk to people and they'd be like, oh yeah, I really like you. I really do like you. I would support you. But like, how much money do you have? I'm like, I don't have that much money. And they're like, oh, I can't support you. You know what I mean? Like, it just completely you, you had You had that conversation with somebody? Yeah, yeah. Because that it's kind about, of transactional, that, that, yeah, that it's, transactional it's that horse, dialogue? It's that horse racing kind of mentality. You know what I mean? It's like, they like this They Whoa. like this person, but if they don't think they're going to win, why do they back this person? You know what I mean? But in democracy, it's kind of like, I, I sometimes I can it to like Tinkerbell. The more you believe in it, the more it will work. You know, that's how it works with all elections, right? But if you... Are you you are conditioning your support then obviously you're just not helping the person you'd want to win anyways it's so strange to think about right because if you if you make if you gamify it and you turn it into gambling then this is why we have really weird results right you it warps that way but yeah i would i would have people you know people in political class right would be like yeah we really like you but we just don't think you're gonna win because you don't have enough money or blah 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 and i'm like I've knocked on like thousands and thousands of doors at this point already. We knocked on 30,000 doors by the end of it. My constituents, so my district has quarter million voters in it. That's almost half a million people in it as well. Um, so it was a lot, a lot of people, right? But we knocked on like 30,000 doors. And I was like, at that point, I was like, I already have like votes and stuff 
coming in and these people just have money and it's like money doesn't buy you the election it's the vote it's the voters why do you think they were so unpersuaded then by your outreach efforts um i think you know i think there's just a lot of um or did they just want to support like the establishment candidate or somebody who there's that but you know most likely yeah yeah it's like when you're when you're like again it's like the gambling mentality right it's like you want to bet on the safe bet right Say someone's that, yeah. a known quantity they have a lot of money they're doing something that's conventional and you're used to that right um right. but a lot of people need to understand that politics especially after the donald trump era has completely changed right we have to adapt and i think especially yeah. democrats my party has to realize we have to adapt um or else we're going to be left behind you know i just think a lot of people just have a, a a different kind of mindset, right? And they're very doubtful of new people and new ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it's a struggle. That's a, that's a real struggle that I would gladly share with other young people is like, they will always doubt you. In any professional setting, people doubt you based simply on your age, you know? Uh, sure. Because they're like, you don't have years of experience in something. But, you know, I always say like, you know, just because you have 20 years of experience somewhere doesn't exactly mean you you made the best out of the 20 years, right? Young people, we can make the most amazing amount out of four There's years. There's so much home. critical thought in this whole, in this whole interview. <laughs> it's like, where are you, <laughs> where'd you come from? What planet? <laughs> well, I, 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 uh, I came from my home district and I went to a great UC. That's where I went. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There, there you go. That's the answer. Listen, I also wanted to ask you because besides, besides uh-huh. the outreach efforts, which of course require a tremendous <clears throat> amount of work, um, you also, I guess another, avenue by which you can communicate with constituents is through the media. Mm-hmm. What was the most challenging thing about effectively delivering your message through through the news media? And and by the way, what do you yeah. think the news media gets wrong? <laughs> um that's a very it's a good it's a great question. There's a lot of different things to that. Um so after our general election victory, we finally did get more um recognition i guess from journalists and the media which is great we did not we really struggled to get that after the primary even though in my situation very similar to how aoc does right my district is heavily democratic so once i def- i won my primary i was the only democrat left so that meant i was going to win and that was a whole nine months where it was like i was presumptive winner sort of thing i mean people in politics understood that but it, right. it seemed to be a concept that the media didn't understand uh, in in our case, and it made it more difficult, right? Because we had big ideas we had talked about, and luckily we're doing that now, right? We're talking about getting corporate money out of politics, about affordable housing as a human right. That is all things we finally get to talk about at a larger scale, and I think it needs to have a public engagement, right? Um, but the struggle, I think, with the media, and this is not any one journalist's fault right now, is no, of course, it's it yeah. works as a system. It's a it's, it's a, a entire system, clockwork, yeah. right? Right. Exactly. Go ahead. It's an integrated ecosystem, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Is that there is a drive to make your story more, and this is now offense to any journalist, to be more clickbaity. You know what I mean? To have more attention, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're, we're living in such an environment where, even during the coronavirus, right, journalists are being laid off left and right. Uh, your tr- your your investor people are literally trying to make you turn into these clickbait machines, and there's just so much pressure to do that. Uh, that sometimes, you know people go for novelty or controversy rather than what the heart of the story is. And it is frustrating sometimes to me or other readers when they want to read substantive stuff, right. Or things about the policy discussion and we're mired in scandal type talk. And it's, it's just the unfortunate way of how journalism is, is adapting to the modern age, right. And the information age, it's just difficult. So it's not, I don't, I don't blame anyone. It's not anyone's particular individual fault. It's just the the system right now. 
Uh, but that's just the frustrating part, right? And but it's, but we have to navigate it. We have to adapt to what we do, right? And I, and how I try to do it is that yes, my story is novel, right? I'm the first Gen Z. I'm the first bisexual state legislator. All these cool novel things. But every time I do those do those things, I also talk about them in my policy right there, right? It's like every article you hopefully read will also have like, well, now I'm talking about corporate money or I'm talking about this thing, right? So um, uh, right below the headline policy right there, you know, and I hopefully um, I'm giving people substance and wanting them to hear about what policy solutions are doing. Because I think the progressive movement relies on that, right? Yes, we have some superstar, amazing people of color who are very diverse and stuff, but also we have some amazing real solutions as well. And that is like the best of both worlds and how we win. Right. And speaking of those solutions, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about one of your marquee issues uh, that you campaigned on, which is the housing crisis. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, and of course, before I think before the, the covid pandemic hit, um, arguably the biggest crisis in, in our state was homelessness. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, you see it everywhere and especially in San Fran. Right. Because yeah. I think I think actually in San Fran, it's a little bit more concentrated just because of the geography than it is here in Los Angeles because it's such a sprawling city. But nevertheless, in 2019, California tallied more than 150,000 people experiencing homelessness, right? So uh, what, 100,000 less people than than just in your district, right? I mean, this is a big amount. So and it seems to me like there are two two big roadblocks and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, There's the housing shortage. And of course, the affordability crisis sort of lumped in. And then it seems to me me like even even when we have some kind of housing available um there are laws in in california which basically give so people with mental illnesses people that are that abuse certain illegal substances or legal substances for that matter um they are not compelled when there is housing available to seek that out and to go there even when it when when outreach is done um you know you see and, and you kind of see that the effect of this everywhere right like sometimes you you know you can call your local homeless um services authority and you can com- you know not complain that's not the right word you can sort of report the same person say you need an outreach right mm-hmm. and they say well, listen our hands are tied we can't do anything about it if the person isn't willing to to go with us so mm-hmm. how do you make sense of all of this and what will you do to ameliorate the crisis absolutely well, you know, I'm going to say the housing crisis and homeless crisis are obviously intertwined. They're so yes. In- yes. intersected together. And how I think about it is this, right? We have the problem of we need to prevent people from falling through the cracks and becoming homeless, becoming evicted and becoming that status, right? We have that real pressure in it, that that almost downward pressure, right? Or maybe upward pressure. It's a downward pressure where people fall through the cracks and become homeless. That is right. especially exasperated during the coronavirus pandemic, right? Where people will face evictions, they lose their jobs, they lose their health care. And a lot of different effects that will probably culminate in becoming and having people lose lose their homes, right? Yeah, yeah. And the second, so that so that's where in law it's very important to make sure we maintain the social safety net to catch people and make sure they could rebound. That is so important to make sure our homelessness crisis does not grow worse. And then the second approach is how do you do you address and and solve the existing homelessness crisis without it getting worse, right? Um, and that I really think is comes down to my my personal belief and the scientific belief about housing first approach, where the key to solving homelessness theoretically is actually very simple. It's homes to get people housed. Very simple, right? How we do that in reality, obviously, has become much more mired in, in complications and politics, right? Um, and ultimately, it's about building supportive housing, making sure it's inclusive and friendly to people. 
and making sure that it is a place that people want to go and, and rehabilitate, right, if that is what they need. Um, because I have the luck of working with some amazing activists here for unhoused folks in the Bay Area, and I've gotten mm -hmm. to speak and meet with a lot of great unhoused people. And just, you know, I think how sometimes, and I think we always have to realize this, right? A lot of us are very privileged to have homes and be able to sleep soundly at night and stuff. But like yep. when you are out there, your belonging, your every earthly belonging in the world, your personal security is out kind of in the wind like that. Mm -hmm. And you have a terrible history with the government or social services and they treat you poorly or something, or especially the police too, right? You're at your most vulnerable. You're at your most vulnerable, right? How yeah. often are you, you know, if you put yourself in their shoes and walk a mile, like how often would you say, well, there's a shelter that came up. Do I feel safe and comfortable with my pet or maybe my family, with my partner, right? To go there, right? Or do I think it's safer to sleep on the riverside or sleep under the, the um, freeway overpass, right? Because sometimes I will hear those stories about like, oh, well, these people are just really awful to us. They do not helpful at all. They're abusive to us or they don't allow pets or there's other people there that I'm afraid of. You know, like these are all things that we think about you know, in our housing situations. Right. And when we go out and find an apartment or something like you don't want to live with some some person who's terrible. Right. So it's really important to make sure that we are working hand in hand with the unhoused community because it really is a, a community now. Right. Just by basic law of numbers and making sure we're sensitive to those needs. Right. Because we cannot impose solutions on them from our mindset all the time. We have to be co-governing with them and really figuring out what is the best solution for them. Uh, but mm -hmm. ultimately, it's going to be a compassionate housing first approach. I want to push back a little bit on on what you said, because I feel like you're making um, like a, ne a necessary assumption, right? So in 2019, an LA Times investigation, and of course, I don't know how this extrapolates to the entire state. I presume that there's yeah. a similarity, but let me let me just set this up for you, right? Because in 2019, an LA Times investigation found that two-thirds of the county's homeless, two-thirds, uh, so six, six, some, something like... Yeah. 67% of the county's homeless either have a substance had a substance abuse disorder or mm -hmm. other mental illnesses. So mm -hmm. if we um you know if we give people um so this is I think this is the necessary mm -hmm. assumption that if you give people complete sort of control over well, if something is available, you can choose to go or not to go, right? Of course, we need to have compassion to facilities. I don't think any, I don't think any mm -hmm. politician has said yay or nay for that, right? But yeah, I mean, yay for that, right? Not nay. Um, but how is it that you um, cannot compel those people if those people um, can't necessarily assume certain rights that they may have because of their incapacities, right? Because, you know, to even assume any kind of right, you have mm -hmm. to be able to, to um, you know, I guess have your bearings together, right? Because you may, if you have a substance abuse disorder, um, you may not necessarily be able to, to sort of commandeer your own life. So how does that assumption factor into what you're talking about? Yeah, well, I would say, first of all, like, people have substance and mental health issues all the time and they can have a house or a fancy apartment or they can have all those things. Right. And you can imagine how Good difficult point. it yes. is to get their life around that way. Right. Right. right I right. don't believe in conditional housing that way, because as you can imagine, it's already so difficult to do it while, while being housed and mm -hmm. to say that, well, you need to solve this issue on the street on your own before you can even get the stabilizing factor, the very basic human need of shelter. You got to figure that out on your own somehow. I think that's completely wrong, you know? So I think that's why, I think that's why it's important to housing. We also have supportive service services in housing and wraparound services, which is all very common in housing first, 
So I definitely think, you know, that can't be a precondition for housing. Uh, and that's where I'm coming from on that. I, I think I'm, I think I, uh, I, I think I misstated something then because it's, I, I didn't make it so that, well, the, the idea that I was putting forth was not, uh, like a precondition to housing. It was just that, you know, if you, um, because some politicians have said this, right, including, um, S- Supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas here in Los Angeles County. At one point, he and I believe another politician, they were sort of mulling over this idea of whether you can compel homeless people who may not necessarily be able to make the best choices for themselves can you compel them uh to to be in 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 um you know um in a shelter for instance if um if they have a substance abuse abuse disorder or mental illness such that they are unable to make the most prudent decisions for themselves i mean do you, what do you think about that yeah well i still believe uh, from my personal experience of working with mm-hmm. the unhoused communities the vast majority Mm-hmm. of unhoused people are completely rational actors just like the people you find in your neighborhood you know they'll they're making a set choice set a set amount of choices based on the circumstances and evidence they have you know it's very common now of course i think there are mm-hmm. a majority of people majority a minority of people and i think it's often when we think about homeless people it's the people that are most severely almost incapacitated right by whatever problems that are plaguing them the people that we're most right. sometimes even afraid of right i don't think that is the majority of folks and I think that will require a more nuanced approach to it. Um, you know, there, there's, there is a myriad of laws about and circumstances of why we have such an issue, right? And one being when we had Governor Reagan, who was a terrible president as well, you know, he closed a lot of mental health institutions and just dropped people in the street, right? The mental health institutions weren't great. There was actually one was in my district too. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of folks uh, supposedly had come from that facility as well. But you know, those facilities weren't great to begin with, right? Because there's a lot of stigma around mental health and you just lock people up in the loony bin back then. Uh, but then they closed them and just dropped people off on the street and just sort of like, all right, go take care of yourself, right? Like that wasn't a solution either. So I think we will have to take a more nuanced uh, health approach to that one. But I think the over, it, it, I think it would be a disservice to characterize the entire unhoused population by those few, you know? Uh, most people are economically disadvantaged and perhaps maybe they have some health or substance issues as well that have compounded to it, but most are still rational actors that will say, you know, I don't want to go to the housing because X, Y, Z, right? Because I know this person there or whatever. It's actually really interesting sometimes where, you know, when we're trying to help people, there'll still be those interpersonal dynamics and they're like, I don't want to go there because that person's there. I'm like, well, yeah, it's, it's funny. It's working those issues out with people, but these are real communities. These are real people. And they are making those fact those decisions just as much as anyone, you know. But I think it it, right. it definitely has a different conversation where you talk about a certain subset of people, you know, who unfortunately I, you know, don't have the same rational rational circumstances. But it's definitely going to take a lot more nuanced approach on that. Um, you have a, a California a California friendly administration coming in right now, yes. and. I feel like every time we, every time there's a, there's a, like a hurricane or some kind of uh, natural disaster in the United States, this thought often comes to me about homelessness. Um, and mm-hmm. I think this, this might be easier now that there is a California friendly uh, administration coming in. And that is, um, you know, obviously so many political actors, they have acknowledged this is a major crisis here in California, homelessness. So, I mean, you know, why don't we treat this crisis um, in the same way? I guess this is a question too. Why don't we treat the crisis in the same way as we would like a hurricane, right? Where disaster strikes, uh, there's a disaster declaration made, and maybe use some kind of vacant federal land to build some kind of shelter on it. And then there you go. You would have that temporary shelter. Um, 
on on whatever vacant federal property. Maybe you can use it. Maybe you can lease it. Right. The state of California. What do you think about that approach to quickly erect housing? Um, Because obviously constructing uh, constructing anything takes time. Right. Absolutely. Well, I definitely think we should be utilizing emergency powers a lot more and federal funding to construct uh, long term solution, long term housing. I would say the key difference between, say, a hurricane, a tornado, or an earthquake even, you know, is that it's a acute problem. It's a acute problem, not a systematic long-term problem. Um, it's not like a hurricane came through Los Angeles and made all these people homeless. It's a, cer- it's a set of circumstances over a long time. Now, um, you know, I think shelters are good and all, but those are always just Band-Aid solutions. What we need is long-term supportive housing, and that's what we vastly, vastly need in this state. So... Um, in the Bay Area, we've been good about doing stepping this up and there's Project Room Key across the state right now trying to rehabilitate underused hotels, especially in this time, to make them permanent housing, right? Because that's how you end homelessness, for people. give them actual housing, not to just say, well, this is where you can stay for a night, you know? Because I think, you know, it's, even in the, the more visual sense of homelessness, right, you can tell that a lot of homeless people aren't unsheltered. They have communities of tents. They have places to go. They have little commu- almost villages sometimes. And it's either you choose to live on your own terms there, or you're going to a place that maybe is more restrictive than somewhere you don't trust. Uh, but ultimately, it means the long-term housing. And I hopefully, I'm hoping that this administration federally will help us in that regard. As we sort of uh, start to, to wrap things up, I wanted to, to ask you quickly about this, because I know this is going to be your first move when you get to Sacramento. Well, I guess you are probably already very close to Sacramento. Well, sort of. Uh, closer than I am, at least. Um, I know your first move will be to um, to to essentially reshape the way um, money is used in elections. Can you tell us quickly about that? Absolutely. Well, on Monday, the day I'm sworn in, the first thing I'm doing is introducing a bill to to root out corporate special interest money in our politics, beginning with the undue influence they have on politicians. I'm going to prohibit corporate contributions to candidates, and that goes all the way from your city council member, your county supervisor, to your state legislator, to the governor of California. And that will be a wide-sweeping reform, because I do believe that there is a huge undue influence of corporations in our elections. If you look at what happened on the ballot this time, or you know the kinds of oodles and oodles of money that they spend influencing candidates and influencing elections, we need to address this, and this is where we begin, right? First, with the influence of decision makers, because those people will make the decisions for years and years to come, and we need to sever that uh, line of influence. And will it will it pass, do you think? I mean, what's the incentive for all these politicians yeah. who get so much money to, to say yes to you, right? Well, I am, I'm optimistic that we will, we will be able to pass it. Look, I am one of the few candidates who won because... I swore off all these all these special interests. I do not take any money from corporations, from the fossil fuel industry, especially as well, all corporations. And if I'm able to tell the story and tell people, look, you do not need to spend and burn millions of dollars, because I kind of alluded earlier on, right? There's just this whole complex, a bloated complex where you need, you feel the pressure to spend money. But if we realize that the reality is if you do a good job and you tell your constituents and you build real relationships as we did, that is how you win. You don't do it by money you know you're not you don't have to do it that way and it makes us stronger by doing that it makes us stronger representatives makes us more representative of the district and you know look if we all did that and the rules of the game all were fair then i think that's fine right because all of us will then be corporate free candidates and we're all playing by the same rules and i'm very heartened by some of the conversations i'm having with my colleagues and i think they're open to the idea but it will take a lot of mobilizing and effort from the public as well and lastly, um, to the students who may be discouraged by the pandemic or to those who are still testing their professional waters, mm-hmm. what's your advice to them, Assemblymember-elect? 
the pandemic is a terrible, terrible thing, but there's a lot of silver linings in it. The way we have, are changing our workplaces, our economy, and our society have a lot of opportunity to say, if you are someone who's like, damn, the system really sucks, but I have an idea to fix it. This is the time. We are in the phase where we should reinvent it and young people are going to be at the forefront of it, right? Because people who have struggled to adapt to these times are, you know, going to cling to those old systems that perhaps didn't work when, when this pandemic is over. But we have such an opportunity to reinvent everything. And you, no matter what field you're in, will reinvent it if you have the passion for it. A big thank you to Assemblymember-elect Alex Lee. I thought that was pretty fun and uh, educational, but who cares about my opinion? It's all about you. So let me know what you think on the comments section. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe, to like, to rate, whatever the heck you can uh, do on Apple Pods or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for taking a listen. Please be safe and stay healthy, and I'll see you all soon.